Okay, we're going to jump right into the Word of God this morning, and, and that's something we do every week. We open God's Word together, we try to let God teach us something that will be practical and life-changing for us. For the last several weeks, we've been in a series of messages called Faith Matters, and um, sort of the idea of the whole sermon series is that this word faith gets thrown around a lot, and it's not very well defined, and we're not really sure what to do with it, and God really has a picture in mind of what a faithful life looks like, practically speaking, and He has a vision for what my life and your life are supposed to look like, and we need to really dig in and get into those practical issues. So we've talked about a bunch of those kinds of things throughout this series. We've been trying to define faith. We've been trying to understand it. We've been talking about the role of prayer. We're going to say some more about prayer in the weeks ahead, um, but what happened was, um, in case you've been living in a cave and you didn't know this, a couple of weeks ago, there was a major Supreme Court decision, right? Um, it's been all over the news. It is the hottest topic. It's what everybody's talking about around the water cooler. It's all over social media and anything you're doing online. Depending on which branch of the so-called news you like to listen to, um, you're hearing one side of it or the other, um, and everybody is talking about it. And it's a very, very poignant and important topic and it affects every one of our lives, and we need to understand what God's Word has to say about it, and we need to understand what God's Word uh, would have us do in light of it. And so um, last week, I sort of went off the script that I had planned, and, and we talked a little bit about the issue of homosexuality and marriage, and we, we said, what does the Bible say about the topic? Now, you think that's a little controversial? Yeah, that, that, that even in, a, in any given church, it wouldn't matter this church, any other church, that for a pastor to stand up and, and to take some sort of position on this and hold the Bible in his hand and talk about such a subject, um, there's going to be a lot of controversy. There's going to be a lot of um, uh, people who, who are thrilled with what they just heard. There's going to be some people who are very dismayed with what they just heard. There's going to be more conversation that needs to take place. And so it would be super great for me if I could just skip all of this, not talk about it, and not make people mad at me. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, God has put a calling on my life to pastor you and to teach the Word and to make sure that the Word of God comes to bear in our lives in a way that actually fleshes out into practical day-to-day -day stuff. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're my age or older, or even, even if you're 40 or older, which is like sort of near my age. <laughs> if, you're, if you're 40 or older, um, this, this topic does not hold for you the same set of challenges that it holds for your children and their generation. When I was growing up, when I was in high school, I went to a huge high school. There was over 4,000 students in my high school. And to the best of my recollection, I don't remember knowing anyone in my school who was openly gay. Now, there were obviously some people who were gay in my school. It wasn't known. It wasn't talked about. It wasn't accepted. It was in the closet. I didn't have to make decisions as a Christian teenager or a Christian college student about what am I going to do with this subject 
when I have so many gay friends who I love and care about, who are, who are wonderful, special people, and who I want to be happy, and yet I have the church over here that's saying, hey, this is wrong, this is bad, you shouldn't do that. I didn't have to grapple with all that kind of stuff. And if you're sitting here, you've been a Christian for a long time, or you're 40, 50, 60 years old or beyond, you didn't have to grapple with it either, probably. But I'm telling you that my kids who are between 19 and 25... They've been grappling with it their whole life, and so have the rest of their generation. One of the reasons I decided this needed to be covered in the pulpit was because I have been fielding questions and having discussions and exchanging emails with a whole bunch of people, most of them under the age of 25, who are saying, Pastor, I'm a Christian, and I've heard what the Bible says about this, but I just can't believe that God wants me to just not love my gay friends, and that God thinks that just because they're gay, they shouldn't be allowed to be happy, and I just don't know what to do, and I'm not sure how to be a Christian grappling with this issue. And to those of you who have ask that question of me or anybody else, I applaud you from the bottom of my heart because it's an honorable thing to do to say, I got to figure this out. Because you know what most of us do? Most of us just decide what camp we're in and we let our camp speak for us. We don't do any hard, difficult thinking. We don't grapple with the Word of God. We don't spend time praying about it. We just sort of get around the people that we think these are our people, and we sort of get the feel for what our people think, and then we decide what camp our people are in, and then if they're in this camp, which is pro-homosexual, we get into this camp, and if they're in this camp, which is anti-homosexual, we get into this camp, and then we just lob grenades at one another, and that's what we, that's what we do. And that is what our culture is doing with this issue right now. If you haven't noticed this, you're not paying attention. And so there is that option. There is the option of being either pro-gay or anti-gay and deciding that your camp is going to decide what you believe and you're just going to let your camp lob grenades for you. Or there's the option of being pleasing to God. But you can't do both. And so listen, in all sincerity... I would much rather, I'm looking at today, I see faces I haven't seen before. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, first time you came and I'm going to talk about this, <laughs> right? It would be so much easier, you guys, so much easier for me to just go, let's just not talk about this. I'll send out a little email, say, hey, let's pray for the nation about the Supreme Court. We'll just let it go, you know? But guys, here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has a calling on your life. And that calling is to be light in a world that is growing consistently darker. And we have to take that seriously. So last week what I did was I, came, I had a ton of notes. And I came up here and I began to preach and I said, I'm just going to lay out the biblical argument. What does the Bible say on the subject of human sexuality, specifically with relation to sexual sin and specifically with relation to homosexuality? And what does the Bible say about marriage? Because you know what? I know you have an opinion about this already. I have an opinion about this. Everybody has an opinion. And guess whose opinion matters? God's. So to whatever degree, by the power of the Holy Spirit, He will help us to understand His opinion on this we will be enriched. Amen? 
So, so what I did last week was I began to lay out this biblical discussion. We looked at key passages in Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I did what I could to try to at least give everybody a general understanding of the clearest passages in Scripture about this. Because as I said last week, we've all heard these arguments. They're just being thrown around like crazy. And arguments are things like this. Um, listen, I know the Bible says in the Old Testament that you, it's not okay to um, have sex with somebody of the same gender. But it also says that you can't eat pork. So why do we listen to one and not the other? And the truth of the matter is, if you're not fairly well-versed in understanding how to read your Bible, that is a good argument to you, right? So what I tried to do last week was I tried to say, listen, when it says don't eat pork, here's why that's no longer the issue for us. But when it says that their homosexual activity is forbidden, here's why that is still an issue. It's about the moral law as opposed to the ceremonial law. Now, what I'm saying is this. If you were not here last week, if you did not hear last week's sermon, I implore you, do me a favor. Please go to the website for the church, gracedwardy.com, and click on last week's sermon and listen to it. Because I don't have time to re-preach what I preached last week, and you are not going to understand what I have to say today in its proper context if you don't understand that. So anyway, I thought I was going to preach one sermon last week. I got just a little ways into it. I said, yeah, I'm not going to be able to, to cover all of this. What I really want to do is just do a seminar. I wish we could do an all-day thing, like eight hours, and... <laughs> Well, there'll be bathroom breaks, so I'll give you lunch. But, but I really, seriously, it would help me so much if we all put it in one day and that by the time you left, you heard the whole argument, right? Because I, I really struggled with the way things went last week. Because last week when I preached, and some of you will know this because you've talked with me about it, last week when I preached, there was a whole bunch of people who were just like, oh, yes, pastor, thanks for preaching. That was so great that you laid out the biblical argument. There were other people who walked out of here last week with their heads down, disillusioned and frustrated and sad because they're going, my gosh, all we heard is it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. But where's the grace? Where's the love? Where's the compassion? The truth of the matter is there's a lot to say about this. And if we're going to be serious about it, we have to take our time to think carefully about the whole picture. So last week, what I did was just lay out, what does the Bible actually say about this? Because too many of us, for whatever reason, I'm not knocking anybody, I'm just saying the facts. Too many of us, even who are Christians, really don't know for sure what the Bible really teaches on this. And we hear people saying this or that, and we're like, well, uh, if that's true, I guess that makes sense. And I just felt it was necessary for you to get a clear picture of some of the clearest passages in Scripture. When it comes to this issue of homosexual activity, the Bible really could not be any clearer. I don't know if there's a subject that is addressed in Scripture that is more clearly communicated than God's view of the issue of homosexual behavior. You can like what it says, you can dislike what it says, you can argue, you can say that the Bible isn't reliable, you can say God doesn't exist, you can argue all of those things. But what you really can't with any intellectual integrity argue is that the Bible is not clear on the subject. Here's what the Bible says, and, and I spent 45 minutes last week unpacking this, go back and listen to it. But the Bible says this, homosexual activity really is sinful. It just is. 
So I, if that offends, I'm sorry. It offends me too. But that's what the Bible says. The second thing we talked about last week that the Bible is very clear about is that marriage is a big deal. So a lot of people who are saying, you know, why, why, why this big argument about marriage? Why are, we, why are we trying to say, you know, you can live together, you can do what two consenting adults, whatever you want to do, but we're not going to let you get married. Why are we so up in arms about this? Well, I don't know why everybody's up in arms about this, but I can tell you that when you look at the Scripture, God communicates that marriage is a very big deal. And we can sit here uh, as the evangelicals or conservatives or heterosexuals or whatever camp you want to put yourself in, and we can wag our fingers at the people in the, uh, our fingers, we can do that, at the, the people who are in the other camp. All of a sudden, I got all Southern on you. I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to start sweating and jumping and preaching. Anyways, we can wag our fingers all we want at the people that we think are in the other camp, and we could talk about how they're disrespecting marriage. Let me tell you what's going on in this country with marriage. We have disrespected it. We have. The The married people for decades have been disrespecting marriage. We've we've come as a culture to a place where we say marriage is just a sort of a legal agreement whereby two people sort of combine their stuff and they decide to live with each other as long as they want to live with each other. And when they stop wanting to live with each other, they don't. Now, listen, I'm way oversimplifying this. And I realize that there's a bunch of people in this room or who will be hearing this message online who who have gone through divorces or in bad marriages or really struggling. I am not in any way dismissing that. And I am not trying to say that you have necessarily done something wrong. But I will say this, as a culture, we have made marriage a throwaway thing. And we have also not just, I'm not just talking about divorce, I'm talking about the way we, we do marriage. Infidelity, that's okay. Pornography, nah, not a big deal. Um, uh, abuse, disrespect, distrust, um, not that big a deal. It's just marriage. Guys, marriage is a huge deal. It's a huge deal to God. And He has defined it. He instituted it. He said what it is. And we looked at Genesis and we saw when God instituted marriage. And we went to Jesus and we had Him comment on marriage in Matthew chapter 19. Listen, whatever your situation is, if you have been through a divorce or your parents have been through a divorce or you're in a marriage that's difficult or all that, you are experiencing very real pain and have experienced very real pain because of that. So I'm in no way trying to add to that. What I want to say is, it's supposed to be better. In God's eyes, and God's plan, it was supposed to be something else. But as a culture, we have said it's not that big a deal, and we're the ones who have failed. And so we can sit there and go, oh, you know, the gay people don't have any rights. We're the ones that messed up marriage, and we're the ones that have a responsibility to do something about that and repent. So I wanted to make sure that we got the, the definitions of marriage out there. We made it clear. Did just some politician or some preacher or somebody make up this idea that a marriage is one man to one woman and a, and a covenant with God? Or did God bring that to us in the Scripture? God brought it to us in the Scripture, and I explained all of that last week. Today, I'm going to keep on this subject and addressing it from Scripture, but instead of today us thinking about them, whoever them is, 
those people out there that aren't our camp. And instead of thinking about them and what they need to hear and what they need to do and how they need to change, I'm going to ask that we really begin to look in a mirror and let God's Word speak to us. Because what God has to say from His Word, He's saying to you. Whether you're reading it yourself at home in your quiet time, whether you're listening to some preacher or, or you're reading a book that's talking about it or whatever, you know, it is so easy, isn't it, when you hear a sermon preached to be sitting there and go, man, so-and-so really needs to hear this. Right? You know who needs to hear this? I need to hear this. And I think you do too. So we want to get down to this question of what does God have to say in His Word, not just about what's right and wrong in terms of sexual morality, but what's right and wrong in terms of how Christians are to behave in the culture in which we live. And that's going to be speaking to us. So those of you who didn't get mad at me last week, you will be mad at me this week. And that's just really great for me. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to start in a very, very familiar place because like I said, it doesn't matter what I think, doesn't matter what you think, it matters what God thinks. So let's go to the Word and open to the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book of your New Testament and I want you to open to John chapter 3. It is arguably the best known passage in all of Scripture. And as you're turning there, let me tell you, set the scene for you. Jesus is just beginning His ministry and there is this Jewish priest named Nicodemus and he's really fascinated with Jesus, and he thinks he might be on to something, but he doesn't know what. So he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's interested in what Jesus has to say. So under cover of darkness, he goes at night, and he finds Jesus, and he says, Jesus, come here. I got to talk to you. And he pulls Jesus aside, and he says, listen, I know you're on to something. I know you're from God. I'm not sure exactly what you're trying to say. So let me just ask you a clear question. How, how do I inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says to him, well, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, what in the world does that mean? You're just talking in riddles. Like, how, do I, how am I going to be born again? Am I going to go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about spiritual birth. And then he explains what it means to be born again. And then we come to this very famous verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Raise your hand if you heard that verse before. Okay. That is the most well-known, famous verse. People who have only one verse of the Bible memorized, it's generally that one. And it's great because it really uh, encapsulates to a great degree the gospel. God looked at a lost and dying world and loved us so much that He sent His only Son to die on a cross so that we could be saved from the punishment that we have coming to us and instead inherit eternal life. How many think that's good news? It's fantastic news. It doesn't get any better than that, okay? And we read that and we stop there. And we don't read verse 17 that says, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, if we're going to talk about this and we're just going to be honest and, 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 and we're just going to call it what the Bible calls it, sin is sin. And you could shake your head and you could shrug your shoulders and go, well, okay, but it's not that big of a deal. 
If you are in the camp that thinks that sin is not that big of a deal, I want you to understand it in light of John 3.16. If sin is not that big of a deal, why did Jesus have to die? He loves the world so much that he said, you are going to perish eternally unless I do something to pay the price for your sin. And so God sends his son into the world to save the world, not to judge and condemn us, but to set us free and to give us life. That's how God responds when he looks at sin. Now, am I saying God is never going to judge anybody? Nope, not saying that because the Bible is clear that he is. Am I saying that God just looks the other way when it comes to sin? Nope, not saying that. The Bible says it's clear that he doesn't. But what I am saying is this. You want to know something about the heart of our God? Our God is a God who sent his son into the world to set us free from our sin, whatever the cost, and the cost was high. And if you're not sure about that, remember the cross. That's important. If he wanted to just judge sinners, there was no need to send Jesus. He could have just hammered the gavel and it would have been over for all of us before it ever began. But God's heart is a heart of grace. Why did he have to go to such lengths? Because sin is terrible. And because the cost of sin is eternal and horrific. And because he loves us. By the way, who does John 3.16 say God loves? So which camp is that? Guys, he loves all of us. God loves us. Sinful people. And he loves us so much that he decided to pay an awesome price to purchase us to be in relationship with him. If you are a Christian, if you're in relationship with Jesus, if you are walking with God and experiencing the blessings of your Christian life today, it is because of God's grace and nothing else. Because we deserve what everybody deserves. God has been so gracious to us. So if Jesus looks upon the world and sees us that way and is willing to pay such a price, what did he do? How did God handle this? Just turn to the left to John chapter 1. And, and I'm going to just sort of read to you John's introduction to his gospel, which is a great theological statement, and I just want to point something out in it. We're going to begin in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here the, the Word is speaking of Jesus. He, the Word, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend that. That's important for you to notice. The light came, shined in the darkness, and the darkness didn't know what to do with it. And so it continues. There came a man, verse 6, sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And now we come to verse 14, where I want us to camp for just a moment. 
And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's something you need to know about Jesus if you don't know it already. He is full of grace and truth. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out, and if you've been around here long, you've probably heard me jump on this soapbox before because I'm passionate about this. But the reason I'm pointing this out is because we get the wrong idea sometimes. If you were to take most Christians, and if you were to take most Christian churches or even denominations, you would find that we have a tendency, as I said, to put ourselves in a camp. And the camp can either have one of two labels in general. There are grace people and there are truth people. The truth people are the people who believe that this is the word of God, that it is to be taken seriously, and that it must be taught and lived by. And so the truth people hold a Bible in their hand. The thicker, the better. They need a very big Bible because they're going to hit you in the head with it. Okay? So the truth people are the ones who say the word of God is the word of God and you better straighten up and get your life right. And there's nothing wrong with incredibly valuing the truth of God's word. If you've ever been to Grace Fellowship, I hope you know already we value the truth of God's word. This is it. This is truth. That's the only reason I'm preaching this message. I would so much rather just go, I don't want to talk about it. But the truth is the truth. And so we hold up the truth, but what happens is the truth people are in this camp over here, and they look at the grace people over there, and they go, you guys don't even care what the Bible says. All you want to do is touchy-feely, make everybody happy, don't judge anybody, and make sure everybody likes you, and they throw their grenades over at the grace camp. Over here, meanwhile, are the grace people. Now, you could choose sides. I'm sure you relate better to one side or the other. But in the grace camp are the people who look at people, especially people who are hurting, people who are lost, people who are struggling and suffering, and they want to help. And they think, it's not helping when you're standing there waving your Bible and telling people how terrible they are. How about if we get in there and help people? But what's happened is that typically we get as far into one camp as we can. And so we have this grace camp looking over at the truth camp, and they're going, you're nothing but a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. Why don't you get out there and love people like Jesus said to love people? In fact, we're so committed to loving people that we don't care what the Bible says, because here's what it says. It says love people. So we're just going to do that. And on these controversial issues, we're not going to argue with people. We're not going to tell somebody that this is sin in their life. What we're going to tell them is Jesus loves them. And, and what tends to happen is the, is the truth people are over here writing books. The grace people are over here feeding the hungry. And they spend a lot of their time just throwing grenades at one another. So the question is, which camp should you be in? Should you be a truth person or should you be a grace person? How about this for a suggestion? How about we be like Jesus, who the Bible says was full of grace and truth? He wasn't half gracious and half truthful. He wasn't truthful some of the time and gracious some of the time. He never compromised the truth in order to be gracious, and he never held back his grace in order to be truthful. And to be honest with you guys, we're terrible at this. The body of Christ in America and perhaps everywhere is just doing a lousy job with this. It's hard to imagine how you could be full of grace and full of truth. Jesus is the only example we've ever had. 
but that's the standard. It's not going to be enough for us to, to make an argument and go, look what the Bible says about homosexuality. Look what it says about marriage. While in the meantime, we're not doing anything to love and care for people. Whatever you hear from me on this subject, you're never going to hear me say, turn your back on your gay friends and family members. You're never going to hear me say, give them what for and tell them what a bunch of losers they are. And by the way, don't get me started on this, you are never going to hear me say, put some hateful post on your Facebook page to let the world see that that's what Christians actually believe about people. Guys, when are we going to grow up? We're going to start acting like Jesus. This is too important. There's too much at stake. We're in a time and a place where we have an opportunity that the Church of America has never had to be light in a certain time of darkness. We're going to take it seriously. Jesus is full of grace and truth. We can't lower that bar. We have to insist upon it ourselves. We don't have to compromise truth. Last week, I held up the Bible and I gave you a bunch of truth. And some of you were frustrated, I'm sure, and some of you were discouraged, and some of you thought, where's the grace? Today, what I'm going to do is say, in light of that truth, while never diminishing that truth and never saying it's anything but truth, how do we act like Jesus in the culture in which we live? Here's what you need to know. This debate that's going on, it's not a debate for us to win. This is not about a debate for us to win. This is about people for us to love. And I don't care what side of the argument they're on. I don't care what camp they find themselves in. Our job is to love them. We are not here to defeat the other guys. We are here for the other guys. You ever wonder with all the struggles and all the difficulties of life, once you come to know Jesus, if the whole point of life is to know God and glorify Him forever, why doesn't He at the moment that you get saved just rapture you up into heaven and get you out of this mess? Do you ever wonder that? What are we doing here? What are we doing here dealing with disease and heartbreak and all of that stuff when we could be in heaven just in the presence of God? What are we doing here? You want to know what we're doing here? We're here for them. Whoever fits in your them category, that's who you're here for, church. That's what God has called us to. So that's our calling, to love the lost, to love hurting people in Jesus' name. And by the way, what's our example? Jesus. You want an example? We won't look this up because you know the story, but you can write it down in your notes. It's John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. If you go there, you're going to find that there's this story where there's this woman, and the Bible tells us she's caught in the very act of adultery. Don't ask me how that happened. Don't ask me if there was a, tra a trap set for her, if they, they were just using her for their own. I don't know what happened. But somehow this woman is caught in the very act of adultery. It's very telling when you listen to this story and you realize that if they're caught in the act of adultery, how many people were involved? We don't know exactly, but at least two, right? How many people were brought before Jesus? One, the weakest, the one who didn't have the rights in that culture, the woman, was brought before Jesus. Where did this take place? In the temple courts, surrounded by all the religious types. They drag her into the temple court, they throw her down on the ground, and they say to Jesus, Rabbi, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. 
The word of Moses says that we should stone such a one. And they pick up stones to begin to throw at her. And they say to Jesus, what do you say? And you know famously that Jesus gets down to the ground and writes in the sand with his finger. And everybody wants to know what he wrote. They don't know. I think he was buying time. I think if this story took place today, um, it would say... And after they said, what do you say? Jesus took out his cell phone and began to check his text messages. <laughs> right? And, and he, just, he just let them stew in it for a while. And then he said this. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And there was silence as these pious religious types sat there looking at their stones and looking at this woman. And one by one, you began to hear the, the sound of stones dropping and feet shuffling away until the last man dropped his last stone, and Jesus was left just with this woman. And he looked at her, and he said, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And here's what he said, neither do I condemn you. What does Jesus do? When he is confronted directly with somebody who is caught up in sexual sin, what did Jesus do? You have this person, this sinner, right here on the ground. And over here, you have these righteous people with rocks in their hands. And Jesus finds himself in this situation. What does Jesus do in a situation like that? I'll tell you what he did. He stood between the sinner and the rock throwers, and he confronted the rock throwers first. And he said, if you're going to be hypocritical, get out of here. And they left. And, and if the story ended there, we could argue, see, Jesus is saying sexual sin is not a big deal. It's hypocrisy that's a big deal. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus turns and looks at the woman, and he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, go and stop sinning. Is this grace or is this truth? Yes, right? This is Jesus. He's a master of this. He has so much compassion and care in his heart for this sinner. If anyone, by the way, in that group, who had the right to throw a stone at her? Only one. And he chose not to. He offered her grace. He offered her forgiveness. He offered her compassion. He offered her a second chance. He treated her as though she was actually a human being who deserved love and respect and honor, regardless of what her particular area of sin was. And he said, listen, that sin, it's terrible. Stop it. It offends God. It's ruining your life. Don't do it anymore. Grace and truth. And here we stand as the 21st century American church in an unprecedented situation where even the highest court in our land has said, we're just going to basically wipe away these sexual morality ideas. And we're going to say it's all the same and there's no right and there's no wrong on this. Listen, I'm not telling you what to, what to think of the Supreme Court justices. I'm just saying this. There is no court. There is no individual. There is no nation. There is no pastor. There is no church who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. 
There is a God who created us all. And he has already determined what is right and wrong. And so, does it surprise us that the world says, hey, we disagree with God and we're not going to follow him? Is that shocking to us? What blows my mind about this is any of us were shocked. Oh my goodness, can you believe that this is the direction our country is going? Hello, Rip Van Winkle. Have you been asleep for 40 years? This is what's been happening. And you know what the church has been doing? We've been gathering in our pretty little buildings and loving each other and throwing stones at them. It has to stop. We have to be the body of Christ, never compromising the truth and always exhibiting the grace of Jesus. Next week, we're going to get into some very specific details about how you actually do that.